Drip on a hundred bitch, say less, that's me. Y'all on level one, I'm level three. Pounding on the table for my team. Every night I flex, I'm making big moves. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Pounding the Table. We're here live for episode 14. It is Saturday, October 24th, and Tony and I got up super early this morning at 9 a.m. We've been in the lab because we are out here grinding. Huge shout out to my mom. Happy birthday, mom. And we have a phenomenal show for you guys this week. Crazy earnings for most of the stocks we do pound week after week. We have an extremely special guest as we have the founder of StockTwits, Howard Lindzen, as our guest this week. Special spotlight stock pick from both Tony and I. And most importantly, maybe you guys noticed that you can finally hear my voice because I was a complete idiot and my microphone settings were way off. So Tony, thank you for finding out what was going on there. And now you guys can hear me loud and clear. My Twitter probably will explode. I'm, I'm glad we finally got it figured out because it's not about when you make the cut. It's just about making it. So yeah, I, go ahead and follow Avi on Twitter. He's getting a little jealous here, but you know. It is what it is, Avi. For those of you who are new, Pounding the Table is a podcast by Avi Mash and Anthony O'Hayan, yours truly, talking about the stock market, the art of options trading. And each week we analyze the news and provide our opinions and insights around how we think the markets will be impacted. So quick disclaimer here, as always, the thoughts on this podcast are purely that of opinion and of our own personal investments. Everything said on every episode of Pounding the Table, as well as our Twitter account, are not and should never be used as financial advice, recommendations, or solicitation. That's right, Tony. And last week we had a unique episode talking about many of the names we discuss week on week. You saw it coming. You gave people the heads up. What exactly happened? Yeah, Avi, I'm super happy that we did last week's episode too. I mean, it was just the perfect time because I, I felt this coming. You know, you've got these names that have run two, three, four, five hundred percent so fast. And, you know, like Fiverr, for instance, ran a hundred percent in a month. So those are times when you sit back and think, okay, like, what am I going to do with my portfolio now? How do I analyze the risk? Because things have changed. My percent allocation to my stocks have changed. And we did highlight that, you know, Square, SE, Mealy, Livongo, and Datadog probably had the most insulation from this kind of drawdown because most of them have multiple legs to stand on, like SE, Mealy, and Square, hardware, software for Square. Livongo, Teladoc, and Datadog are, you know, they have a lot of news coming to them and they're really changing the game in their space. So that's why those are in my top five of strength and obviously growth still because I don't buy things that don't have potential big growth. But I'm glad that we did highlight the risks and the other names a little bit more. You know, Fiverr, as I said last week, ran 100% in a month. And while I do love this company, in fact, it's my biggest conviction stock long-term in terms of gains just because of the market cap being so low. And I see this being the Amazon of gig economy. And honestly, even the physical goods and services, you know, like the Angie's list, like I mentioned last week kind of thing happening. I still think that anything that goes from 90 to 180 in a month needs to be trimmed and rebought a little lower. And and same with Etsy there, you know, we had mask theory that we were talking about last week, where everyone was assuming that the growth only came because people were buying COVID masks. And obviously, even though that's not true, you'll see it in the earnings. But I think I proved it last week with the numbers I was discussing. Even though that's going to happen, I think you're going to see huge growth. You have to understand that those headline risks, those like mental, the psychology of the traders in those stocks is what plays the biggest part in the stock's price. It's not just the multiple. It's not just the fundamentals and the growth and the vision. It's what people think at that time. So obviously mm. people were, the markets were rotating a ton, right? So you're going from growth to big tech to value and cyclicals. And so when that happens, you definitely see people shave off a little bit of their growth stocks. And one thing I want to highlight too, which is a big reason why I saw this coming, was that margin requirements at a lot of brokerages, like E-Trade went from 25 to 30%, and a couple other brokerages did the same thing. So you have to have more cash for your margin requirement if you're levered at all, even if you just have a margin account. So people had to sell some of their stuff uh, to be able to stay fully invested and not get that margin call that they have to you know, get out of eventually. You can't stay in a margin call. It's like that, uh, that movie, Avi, uh, trading places, you know, all bets are settled, mm -hmm. settled at the end of the day. So people had to sell off some of their winners, of course. And those big winners that ran so fast and had that headline risk were the ones that had the most potential risks of falling. So even though we talked about that, I'm, I'm glad that a lot of people got that heads up. And, and I did myself and I actually rebought my Fiverr and my Etsy 
I added to my data dog and fastly, I've just continued to hedge on the downside. I don't, I don't really want to sell my shares because I've been able to capture most of the move and hold in those gains through hedging weeklies, as I did with the other five names that I, we talked about in the top tier. That's always something to consider. And even though I think these companies are going to be incredibly great moving forward in the next five to 10 years, that happens from time to time. You'll get these 10, 20, 30% pullbacks, and then it'll revert back to being a huge gain. So you have to be a trader if you want to be a great long-term investor. I've had this discussion and argument with 50 people on Twitter now. I think everyone else is wrong but me on this if you don't agree with the fact that you have to be both. Being able to buy back a stock 20 or 30 points lower with more shares with the same amount of cash is better than just holding the stock through you know, all the ups and downs. So watch your portfolio, know the risks, and you know, act when you think something's going to happen. I think you probably brought up the best point ever that we are never, ever wrong we're just not right yet. That's, of course, a joke, guys. Everyone can be wrong. We are just giving our opinions here. But one thing that I do think is interesting, especially since we do talk about these stocks left and right every single week, we have massive earnings coming up. So let's just break it down day by day. We got Monday, Twilio and Chegg. Tuesday, Microsoft, AMD, ENPH is definitely one I'd love for you to highlight, Tony, a solar company that you absolutely love. Wednesday, we got Livongo and TDOC inherently on the same day, which is very interesting to me. I'd love to hear your take on these two companies that are about to merge, how that actually affects the earnings and, and what people think about that. We got Fiverr on Wednesday, ServiceNow, Etsy, Fastly, and Pinterest. And then Thursday is insane. We got Shopify, Amazon, (laughs) Apple, Pinterest, Twitter, Apple, Facebook, Spotify, apps, Google, and new one, AB InBev, just simply because I played a complete lotto on Sam Adams and dominated that. So let's jump into it uh, a little bit here. Tony, you want to break down a few of these for us? Yeah, Avi, you must be really excited about Apple because you said it twice. So, I mean, I'll I'll save that one for last. (laughs) (laughs) Could be the wine, Uh, but... uh... (laughs) Could be the wine. All right, but like looking at uh, Tuesday on ENPH, you know, obviously solar has got a huge run-up recently. And a lot of these companies like ENPH, Enphase Energy, Solar Edge, SEDG, and uh, Sunrun have actually really, really good earnings, you know, profits, all that. Like they're fundamentally sound companies. And I think a big part of the run-up recently, obviously, has been the election. People are predicting that possibly... It was Biden and now they've sold off. So now people are pivoting more to Trump. And, th- and that's just going to continue to happen because obviously no one knows the outcome of the election yet. You know, that's something to watch because the earnings might actually, you know, I think a lot of people think it's going to move huge, but I feel like a lot of these solar companies won't move huge and will just kind of stay in place into the election. Maybe they'll continue to run up and run down, but it's not going to be because of an earnings report, in my opinion. So one to watch, but that's more of an election play in my mind. Microsoft, of course, beast company, huge company. And like that's going to go along with the Amazons, you know, the Apples, the Facebooks, the Googles, like all the five big names are reporting Thursday and Tuesday. So that's like something huge to watch for because the movements on those stocks alone will really move the NASDAQ. I mean, if you take into consideration that Amazon and the big five make up 45 plus percent of QQQ in the NASDAQ, then if these things all beat and run 10%, the, the NASDAQ is going to go insane. If these things drop, it's going to you know drop the NASDAQ a lot. So definitely something to watch for, for the overall markets movements there, because those five companies really make up half of you know the NASDAQ. It's huge there. I think what's really interesting too is this Livongo and TDOC because they're reporting the same day. So, you know, I, I really don't, you know, something I've never seen before is like something that's merging together, you know, in the coming months, but they're going to report earnings on the same day. So what if, you know, Livongo does really, really well and TDOC does poorly? Like, I I don't know how that's going to play out exactly. So I think that they're both going to report really well. I think they're going to have great numbers, both of them, just because, you know, COVID's not over yet. People are continuing to use this telehealth services and health monitoring, and that's only going to start growing harder and harder every year. And then you've got all these new partnerships uh, with other health insurers that are bringing in telehealth and telehealth monitoring into their standard coverage, right? So I don't know if that's going to be baked in or factored into this quarter at all. I don't know if those deals have been like minted on their books yet, or if it's going to be a next quarter or next year thing, but I bet you the guidance for these things is going to be nuts. And that's really all people care about is the guidance for companies. You know, they, they have to report at least well, but if their guidance is massive, that'll jump the stocks huge. And I actually think that this is what's going to happen here because these stocks have been basing for such a long time and they want to see what the mergers done in terms of their companies you know, success in the overall field. 
Fiverr, Etsy, Fastly. I, you know, I love all these names. Um, Fastly a little less since recently, but I do think Fastly, for instance, people are like, oh, it's going to get killed on earnings. I think it's already been factored in the bad news. They they pre-announced for a reason. I I doubt that it's going to go and tank another 20% on their earnings, but once again, always possible. So that's why I hedge. Fiverr and Etsy also have come down about 10 to 20% in the last week or so. Uh, I'm glad we called that that would happen. Uh, A lot of people actually got out and benefited from that. So I'm happy to hear that from you guys. But I think that actually that they'll do well. You know, when a stock's running all the way at all-time highs and reports at all-time highs, that's more worrisome than a stock that's been way higher and you know it's a great long-term company and is down 10, 20% from its highs. It's got less potential to drop even further because people are actually selling ahead of the earnings report. And what's actually really interesting about the fact that all of these big names are reporting before the election, the week before the election, is they want their earnings report to be factored into the current market dynamics, right? So if someone wins the election, I don't know, whoever it's going to be and however the market's going to respond, that's uncertainty. So they could have a great report. And if the market's selling off, they'll go down regardless. So these companies are smart for doing it all before the election to get a real uh, result from what their earnings are going to do in the market's movements. So that's why this is all happening. I think you've got so many earnings this week that not one in particular matters, but it's more of the aggregate and how the market responds. Because that'll tell you what the market's feeling in the future for these names, whether it's the big growth names that we talk about or the big tech names that everyone talks about. So we'll, we'll have to see what happens here. With all of these earnings coming up, how in the hell are you going to get some sleep? Like, And even if you don't get sleep, are you going to be drinking either Celsius to wake up or possibly even forage kombucha. I, I might have to do both at the same time. The, the the Celsius for the, you know, the taste of the the carbonated flavors and the caffeine, of course. But obviously I'm going to have to drink some forage kombucha too. Check it out at foragekombucha.com because, you know, that really just gets me energized and feeling healthy throughout the day. So Avi, I, I got a question for you now. I know we, we, we talk a lot about what I think about stocks and and this actually goes really well in your in your realm of degeneracy for for betting and, you know, making these risky decisions all the time. So we got a spotlight pick for you guys this week. And it's actually, you know, it's a, it's, it's a triple pound, you know, like it's uh, a lot of people that we talk to love this. We love this name. And Avi is a huge fan of this name. Yeah, Tony, not only am I a degenerate gambler, my first job coming to New York was actually at a gaming company. F-E-A-C is the ticker symbol. It's going to be turning into skills. What is Skills? It's the pioneer of casual esports. So really focused on mobile today. They are making not only money for developers by increasing the player engagement, also allowing people to bet. So you think about games you play on mobile. Now I can bet you that I'm going to beat you on mobile, plain and simple, right? Thinking about the industry as a whole, it is massive. The gaming industry is larger than not only movies, music, and books combined. They got 2.7 billion gamers playing every single month. They have 10 million developers worldwide. And what's more is gaming's expected to really surpass television in the next five years. We've seen how insanely well DraftKings has done in capturing that sports betting market, running literally 500% since SPAC IPO, which we touched on, I think, probably on the first or second pound in the table episode. And as we've seen many times, SPACs are kind of these essential lottery tickets, right? You don't know what company they're going to acquire. So the best SPACs have not only the best management, but the highest market cap too. So how much money they've actually raised. Taking a look at their management, right? Harry Sloan is the founder of Feek. And what else was he involved with? He was the founding investor in Bethesda Games. They were acquired by Microsoft for $7.5 billion. He was also involved with DraftKings. So, you know, these guys know what they're doing. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And and I'll I'll touch a little bit more on what uh, Skills does specifically. So they provide a platform for anyone to compete in any game. So, you know, Avi, our our moms could play Candy Crush against each other and bet each other and I, I bet mine would win but you know happy birthday to obvious mom anyway um you know many casual games like scrabble and solitaire historically have lacked any esports offering you know because the games are mainly played by these casual you know sometimes not as invested in playing the game and not professional players by most senses of the word and because creating an esports platform from the ground up is is, is really difficult so these game developers usually monetize with using like in-game items, you know, like a Fortnite skin or whatever it is. And then these intrusive ads, which I know everyone gets annoyed at having to click out of them whenever they're playing on their phone or whatever it is. So the thing about these ads is it just, I mean, annoys users and the in-app game purchases are actually quite annoying too and frustrating because 
it just kind of creates this uh, pay to win experience where those with more money can just easily beat out the casual player just there for fun who who didn't buy that, you know, Fortnite battle pass or whatever. And I think whenever you look at a SPAC or, or really any investment, right, is you want to look at what the overall opportunity is. I, I love the, the quote by Henry David Thoreau is kind of, you can build castles in the sky as long as you have that foundation built underneath. Their total addressable market cap is absolutely bonkers almost $70 billion, so $68.5 billion, and it's growing nonstop. Next year, it's going to be $76.7 billion. By 2025, it's expected to be over $150 billion in annual revenue. So 2020, let's just talk about this year, consumers are going to be spending 670 billion hours <laughs> playing mobile games. That is crazy. I'm actually, I never was a gamer, but I, I did buy a Xbox. I started getting into Warzone and a lot, I'm probably addicted now. I, I think I'm going to continue beyond COVID, yep. but yep. taking a look at those hours, the 670 billion hours that have been played already on mobile games. So mobile games are continuing to outpace PC gaming in terms of revenue growth. Today, 33% of all app downloads are mobile games within itself, right? So that makes up 74% of all consumers' expenditures across not only Google Play, but also Apple's App Store. So the opportunity is clearly massive. Skills may be the only company that can really tap into this market due to many competitive advantages. So not only is the system in place, people love playing games, their main advantage is this anti-cheat system. So if you think about me playing a game, you said your mom's way better than my mom at Candy Crush, which we will actually go to battle and see if that is true. (laughs) (laughs) But for example, let's say I'm playing Candy Crush, I'm horrible. And then all of a sudden I, I, I give my phone to you and you just dominate Candy Crush. They have algorithms in place that know that behavior. So they'll know that it was no longer me playing the game, which is really built off of years and years of player engagement and data. And so this anti-cheat system is going to really maintain that player's trust. If I'm going to bet money, I want to make sure that I'm playing against you and not some robot, of course. You know, you look at companies like DocuSign, why are they worth so much? It's literally just a signature application. It's because of the patents, right? So Skills has 58 patents already granted and pending for its technology and has the infrastructure to run millions and millions of tournaments per year. Obviously, I've looked at a lot of companies. I've, I've bought a lot of stocks and I've done a lot of research on a lot of names. And it's rare for me to find some data that just blows me completely away. And like, I think the only few times I've had this is like with Tesla and Mealy and, and Square and, and SC. And so I think this mm-hmm. is one of those opportunities for me, at least, that I, I think is just an absolute game changer because this company is basically going to not only grow the space by so many X, but they're going to be the leader in this by being first and having those patents. I mean, it's, it's awesome. So tell the people what it's about. Yeah, I mean, you're a data guy, right? People are spending an average of 62 minutes per day on skills. They're actually making mobile games even more addictive. That's cool. Well, let's actually compare it to other apps that you guys know, right? People are spending 52 minutes on TikTok, 40 minutes on YouTube, 28 minutes on Snapchat. So this is beating the majority of those, right? But here's the number that will absolutely blow your mind. In comparison to the average mobile gaming, whereas skills is 62 minutes, the average is only 17 minutes. And given you're a data guy, I gave you some tidbits, you fucking divulged way further. Yeah, that, I mean, 17 minutes a day on average for mobile gaming and seeing that skills does 62 minutes. Here, here's some quick math. And I mean, this is just so easy to see, but just mind boggling. So let's, let's, do, let's do some quick math. If the average time spent on mobile is 17 minutes for gaming and with skills is 62 minutes, that means that people spend about 3.7 times more time on skills than on this average mobile gaming. So there's a good chance Honestly, a very, very likely chance that as skills grows, it will single-handedly explode the gaming market's total addressable market by that factor of 3.7 for for the amount of the market that it captures. So, you know, whatever game developers go with skills, I think those games will increase by that 3.7 multiple, obviously over time, but that gives it the platform and the runway to do that. And and if you're like, oh, uh, how are you going to grow a $68 billion a year market by that many times? Well, here's some actual data that'll make you believe. Check this out. So skills makes $6.3 per user to Zanga's 1.7. And and if you do the math there, that's exactly 3.7 times. So that right there is as spade as a spade as it can get. That's literally 
a prediction going into current data now that it's going to extrapolate more and more over time. So they expect to do revenue of 225 million in 2020. And in 2022, they're going to do 555 million. But I think that is a hell of a sandbag given the data that I just read out. So, I mean, it's a highly scalable business model and they have 95% gross margins, which is ridiculous. I mean, I don't think there's another company I know that has 95% gross margins in, in what they do. Obviously, that's not the margin for the overall revenue. Of course, that's their EBITDA. So earnings before income, tax, depreciation, and amortization is going to be over 30% by the time they get the profitability. And I definitely agree with that. If you have 95% gross margins and growing revenue, it's a matter of time before you become a massive beast in profit generation. So the management actually obviously agrees with us as they have lots of room to grow. And they're saying that this goes way beyond esports to add in all the other genres of video games in the world. So internationally, this will be massive for them, they said, as well as the deployment of new monetization models like brand sponsored uh, prize partnerships. So that that's really, really cool because you see that happening right now in a lot of these other e-game esports. E- You've got these brand sponsored uh, prize partnerships and these huge tournaments all over the world for Fortnite and, you know, like PUBG and all this. So that is just getting started. And obviously it looks like it's going to grow insanely over the next few years. And now 90% of their revenue is from users in North America. And they haven't even tapped the international market, which is four times larger for this kind of gaming than the US, than North America. So that's, that's just ridiculous. I mean, I, I love that the two founders of Skills also elected to receive mostly only stock from their merger. So they're saying that they believe in this thing 100% and they have every reason to. They're doing 1.6 billion in GMV and 2 billion tournaments this year. So that's, I mean, this is not just the beginning of a company. This is like a company that's already hitting the runway hard and is capturing the market, getting those patents and just nonstop trying to get that path of domination for what will be a huge industry in the future. They've got 88% growth rate revenue year over year. There were 30,000 mobile game developers in 2009, and now it's 10 million in 2020. So I don't think that's going to go down from here. So the platform is actually underpinned by data science, which you were talking about with this anti-cheat, anti-fraud thing, the player rating and matching, the algorithm skill versus chance testing. So that's awesome. I mean, like, I hate playing Fortnite and getting wrecked by some bots when, like, people, I know that these kids are, like, using some mod bots and just like attacking me with their aim bots. And it's just, it's awful. Like it makes the game unplayable, especially if you're betting money, you're going to throw your controller at your TV. So this kind of removes that and brings the fun back into gaming. And so the last thing I want to talk about is on these revenues is, and and they're just their numbers in general is between 2020 and 2022 skills is going to have a 57% revenue CAGR, a 6.2 times enterprise value to revenue multiple and a 6.4 times enterprise value to growth profit. This is just so much better than DraftKings Shop, Mealy, Etsy, PayPal, Square, and Pinterest on a comparable basis. This is not even factoring in that they could get, and they probably will get huge into PC gaming and Xbox, PlayStation, Nintendo Switch. I mean, it's it's just the beginning and, and mobile games are so huge, but so are these other things. And all they have to do is just like, you know, change the interface and, re- and retrofit it. And, and they're going to capture the possible $172 billion a year mobile gaming and all gaming uh, TAM. So very interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it's absolutely massive. We're talking mobile right now. What happens when a tweet goes out that they just partnered with Microsoft to get into Xbox or Sony for PlayStation? That is like, I've always, I play NBA 2K, I play Madden. I would love to bet someone, you know, 20 bucks to, that, I, that I'll beat them in that game. If and you bet me, you're going to be sorely mistaken, buddy. <laughs> I'll wreck you in Fortnite and Warzone. Yeah, I was going to say, you're, you're a child playing the Fortnites. And I'm in Warzone, I'm an adult over here, Tony. Uh, <laughs> but <laughs> if you think about that, man, like, honestly, the biggest factor, right, I think, is those algorithms to understand if you're cheating or not, right? Because you, I have trust in, like, PayPal, for example. If I send you money over PayPal, there's that trust factor. So I think that they are very smart to get ahead of that. And, like, as I mentioned, the potential here is massive. They get into Beyond Mobile with Xbox and PlayStation, not even factoring in these brand advertisers that are seeking always, you know, these new ways of engagement to currently exists with not only their current customers but potential customers that they can start tapping into tiktok you know did not even exist you know three four years ago it's, it's absolutely crazy and so as advertisers they are going where the audience are right and so that example of tiktok roku which is brand new so yeah i think the industry here is just absolutely massive i think these guys are one of the leaders in the space really getting ahead of any questions from consumers that they may have 
this one's just getting started. I will pound the absolute table on skills. Again, F-E-A-C is the ticker symbol. Absolutely love that. I'm going to definitely pound this with you, Avi. I actually think I'm going to make this into my top 10 positions. I, I, I think that there's so many companies now that everyone knows about and everyone talks about, and this is just kind of getting started. And if you, I mean, like on a revenue basis and like, you know, fundamental basis, it's a beast. But in terms of like the vision of the future, I, I, e-gaming and gaming, mobile gaming, it's it's not going anywhere. People want something to use to distract themselves, you know, whether it's like, you know, uh, alcohol or another like something like whatever it is it it can be anything that gets people like you know gambling you know sports betting it's it's all stuff that people will come back to and come back to and i think that that kind of that kind of potential growth and and and, an attraction of almost anyone with that human innate desire to you know at some level gamble and at some level be risky and and you know it's you're not going to be i mean hopefully avi you're not going to be betting ten thousand dollars on warzone games but you know, for five or 10 bucks, if you're going to play three times, four times more, this company is going to make so much money and make so much money for other game developers. So you could definitely think about a spade as a spade here, right? Like I know Unity just went public and that's a, that's a beast of a, a gaming company. And, and, and I think all these gaming companies are going to benefit from skills. So when you've got like kind of the pick and shovel of the entire industry and it's just getting started at this great valuation, I mean, yeah, this is going in my top 10. Yeah. And I think the key here too, before we, we jump ahead is, is that this is like a, a platform, right? So mm-hmm. it really is not only ubiquitous across every single potential game long-term, it enables, you know, me and you, if we're developers to quickly put a game up and it is that platform that we know and love like Facebook, Spotify. Or, yeah, yeah. It's just like, like Shopify it's, 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 exactly. Ex- I was just going to say that. I was just going to say, this reminds me of the Shopify for gaming, but obviously in a betting format, but this is exactly what that is. It's a, a platform and you always want to be, the platforms are always bigger than the individual names inside the platforms, in my opinion. So platforms are huge. And, and this is why we pound the table on stuff like this. I mean, at $10 floor price, I very much so doubt it's going to go under $10, especially with like what I just read and what you just read it mind boggling the numbers. So this is a top 10 position now. And Tony, let's shift gears here a little bit. This is a historic day here for Pie on the Table as we have the godfather of online financial communities, Howard Lindzen, who is really the reason why Pounding the Table exists. I don't know if he knows this, but Tony, me and you had met online literally through FinTweet and really through Twitter as a whole and bringing this community together. So really excited to bring Howard on. I also got to just drop a quick disclaimer. Still obvious, still the same dude. Uh, My microphone, I just had to switch for the upcoming portion of the podcast. So my voice is just going to sound a little bit more like this, apparently. So pretend this never happened and let's just go on with the show. All right. Pretend you're in Men in Black. You're staring into the red light now and flash. So for those of you who are unfamiliar with Howard, he is the founding father pretty much literally of anything on the online financial communities. He was the founder of StockTwits. Early investor in Robinhood, Coifin, SecFi, many others. One thing I, I found fascinating was this, you know, focus on interconnectivity throughout investing. There seems to be this common theme of kind of the accessibility of everything, right? Robinhood, you brought 13 million users on, 3 million just in this last year. Stock Twits, Coifin, SecFi, millions others. What really gave you this big idea to more or less be a pioneer in the space? Well, like any anybody, I you know whether it's comedy and you're inspired by Letterman and Seinfeld or Johnny Carson. For me, weirdly, um, I have to say Kramer when he came onto the scene in '90. I had just started my hedge fund, like you, Anthony, and I didn't have a fucking clue what I was doing. I my partner and I had had a company selling squeeze balls called The Grip, and we were making a lot of money, like a couple of drug dealers. Um, selling squeeze balls and we just got into the market we were like we got cash let's uh, trade stocks <laughs> and um, this is in the 90s before the internet or just as the internet was coming on but definitely before mainstream internet and then Kramer came on the scene in like 98 and I was like wow I, you know because I couldn't afford Bloomberg or anything and I, I just I didn't know anything about the market so he was writing about this stuff and a lot of the time it was he was right. It was a bull market, obviously. I've learned over time no one's right all the time. But it was just a, a, he was blogging, and that was the beginning of the whole thing. 
And then nothing happened for like eight years, you know, market crashes, Yahoo, finance, like street, everything got boring and dull. And, and then YouTube came and I'm like, I was running my hedge fund. And I'm, I'm like, wow, I want to create the next media thing on top of YouTube. So I started a company called Wall Strip, which was like short videos about the market and you know, got acquired by CBS. It was the first show ever acquired by a major media network on YouTube. And so I became a bit of a celebrity around finance. It was kind of like Larry David, Saturday Night Live meets the street. And we did about 400 episodes. And then, I, and then Twitter started and I'm like, fuck, that is literally Bloomberg. That's the future. So, so then mm-hmm. you know, between, between Kramer, YouTube, and then Twitter, I was like all in. And I left CBS, bought myself out of my contract and kind of was hoping Twitter would just do finance. And I invested in TweetDeck and, and Bitly and a company called Betaworks that we ended up owning mm-hmm. a lot of shares of Twitter. And I was like Twitter for finance and they were not interested in it. And uh, so I kind of got, I had to go create it, came up with the dollar sign. You know, I sent Fred Wilson a message, you know, let's, you know, I want to buy RIM, dollar sign R-I-M-M. And it was on a BlackBerry at the time. There wasn't even an iPhone. And he sent me back a, a message saying, well, that's genius. You should just do it yourself. And off we went. 12 years later, I would say Stocks is probably the biggest, at least, you know, American social network focused on trading and investing, you know, outside of Twitter, I guess, you know, but we started the FinTwit revolution and onboarded a lot of people to the internet for finance. And uh, we're really proud about that you know it's fun like the people think of us like that you know because you know it's not an ego you know we we dislike all the people that have ego you know when they come on tv and and jokingly pound the table which is i think such a great name for your podcast because pounding the table like stock twits we were making fun of how stupid the professionals were pounding the table is kind of a a spin on that especially in a pod even if it isn't in a podcasting world it's funny but if you know, <laughs> people coming on CNBC pounding the table and you never hear from them again, you don't know who they yeah. are. And it's so dumb. And and the whole idea of financial media, especially new media, is you are, if you're going to say something, you're going to be accountable or, or no one's going to care after a while, right? So, and that's why Warren Buffett doesn't do it. It's like, he doesn't need to do it. He doesn't want to like, he doesn't owe anybody anything. There's no reputation to be built. Whereas you guys are out there, you know, just building your reputation. So- that's kind of what we pioneered is letting people use a timeline to build their reputation of, around stocks and markets. And I'm really proud of that because thousands, tens of thousands of people are, are using it for the exact same reason you are to build a show, build a product like Robinhood. I mean, they're the, they, the only reason Robinhood knew me is because of Stockwoods and they came to pitch me, mm-hmm. you know, asking to see the product. So kind of like the grand poobah. Like I, luckily I'm in a position where everybody says, what does Howard think? I mean, that's, everybody wants to be in that position. You want to see the pitches. And um, so I'm very lucky. So, uh, so that's why I talk to everybody in the community and uh, I want to see flow. What do great hedge fund traders do? They see flow. And so what do great investors do? They see flow. And so as long as I'm nice to people, which I love doing anyways, and kind to people, and, you know, I'm a bit mean at sometimes. Some people think I'm mean, but I'm not trying to be mean. But as long as I'm they're listening. I think that's that's my job. Well, you've done a phenomenal job. I mean, looking at StockTwits alone within itself has over 2 million people growing every single day. People are now blogging, sharing their ideas, has this Robinhood integration, which of course makes investing all really connected. And when we think about even the, the Dave Portnoy's of the world, FinTwit in general, how has all this community building really, if any, affected the market and, and how people really invest day to day? I mean, it's, it's, it's the question. I mean, long story short, it's incredible, right? Retail drives market. Eventually, young people have to buy all the stocks of the old people. They got to go somewhere. So it's, we live in a giant Ponzi scheme. We live in a giant, you know, as Musk would say, it's a giant <laughs> simulation. Our simulation has... Bits and bites and real pieces of money, and they get passed down, and and uh, in a giant Ponzi scheme of, of of money printing. So, the old people should be fucking happy that the young people are out there, you know, fractionalizing and 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 getting sometimes stuck. 
you know, obviously stuck like pigs with bad paper. And um, so I think it's, it's a miracle because we millennials and, and Gen Z don't get enough credit. We should be educating these kids so much better than we are. I was just on the phone with some Columbia uh, founders that started a, a woman's investing product. And it's just like, she went to Columbia. She didn't have, take an investing class at Columbia. Like what the fuck is going on in this, in this country? Mm-hmm. Should, be taught, should be taught in high school. Like, there's nothing better than Anthony being 22 and running his own business out of his house. So I think the next generation is going to be an investing class. And why fight that? Like everybody's arguing about employment and what have you as the government prints money and, and we fight a disease, a healthcare problem with money printing. It's the most, I mean, it's absurd. The absurdity yeah. is, is too much to take. And the young people are trying to figure this out and they're buying brands that they like. They're talking to their friends on Discord, Stock Twitch, Slack, Telegram, Twitter, <coughs> Snapchat, and they're communicating. And what are they communicating about money? PayPal, you know, Venmo, Square, Bitcoin. That's all they give a fuck about is they don't want to, mm-hmm. you know, they want to do smart things. They want to have access to capital. They don't care so much about things as they do experiences until COVID and that might change us in a different direction. So it's a, it's a great thing. That's why I love talking to young people about this stuff is because the earlier you learn, the better, you know, for a hundred years, they were like, you got to learn Chinese. You got to learn Spanish. You got to learn French. Mm -hmm. Well, guess what? Tech, the language of tech is English. And so there's one language, there's English. And then there's, if you can't code, the only other language is money what to do with it, how to get it, how to invest it, how to trade it, how to hoard it, how to, how to spend it, how to give it. And uh, so there's two languages that matter. And the younger people learn English in either coding and coding and money. Those three languages are better. It's like iOS, Android, and, uh, and uh, what was Shamath just saying? iOS, Android, and uh, I'm screwing it up in the internet. But like, there's three languages. Build on top of those three languages. I, I couldn't agree with you more, Howard. And honestly, I, I think I learned the majority of, of, if not all, the investing I know on stock twits and Twitter and, and you know, like on the Internet and, and practicing it in person. You know, it's not just learning it from a textbook about a supply and demand curve. And the amount of people now who are my age, even younger getting into the markets and actually being successful because they're having all this time, you know, working from home to, to put into researching the markets. I mean, they're learning way more than they did in college. And, and, and trust me, I, I, I can attest to that. Um, yeah. And, and the, so what you guys are doing, like, is part of building on top of what everybody else has done. Now we get to the point, like you asked Davey Barstow, I'm pounding the table. I mean, you can't predict what, who the next rising star is, right? So all you can do is provide, is try and have fun with it. Uh, you can't contain it. You just swat flies, right? So it's, it's just embrace it. There's so many shooting stars. You know, three months ago, I would have said Davey Barstool would have his own TV network talking about stocks. But the guy likes to gamble. So, like, he's not mm-hmm. that interested in stocks. And the market's hard. And his business is sports and gambling. So mm-hmm. he's pretty quiet. Like, I mean, I wasn't ever going to take advice from him. Or, uh, but he could have, I mean, if he really was into it, he could be a great trader. There's just no mm-hmm. doubt. You know, the market was going up. He's making money. He was on the right side of a trade. And it was fucking hilarious. Now, I would never take his advice because I take it a little more seriously. And mm-hmm. while I was enjoying the ride up, you know what I mean? Like he just, he was yeah. mocking it and uh, right. which is fine. I mean, it was great for clicks, Yeah, but we know what the market does. And I don't think he's that serious about building a long-term business around finance. Now you guys, so everybody's different and everybody uses it for a different reason. Uh, and he was, I, I wouldn't have predicted it. And it was really, some of it was fucking hysterical you know, we'll see where that goes. People will people will run with that torch and go in different directions. Yeah, that's the thing here. It's like this double-edged sword, right? Uh, he brought a ton of new investors on board. A lot of different reasons for that. And and millions of people, of course, listened to Barstool. And he was I was joking on, I think, the first episode ever about how he was picking Scrabble pieces. And he does have that celebrity microphone. And, and of course, it's great. It's bringing new investors in. Uh, and then you go to like Wall Street bets. You see people yoloing, cracking up that they lost eighty thousand, you know, a day. And so, 
I just think it's a, a very interesting moment uh, in time that we are living in. And I, and I agree with you. I think it's here for the foreseeable future. The faster, listen, any one story can be tragic, right? Like, so, mm. This is not a joke. So obviously any one or 10 or 100 stories can be tragic. But the onboarding of millions of people is a miracle. And so we have to remember that in this country as we go fight you know, liberal, libtard, uh, right-wing, whatever we're going to call people. To me, it's about what are we really arguing about? Getting 13 million people to invest for all the mistakes that the last generation's made to be potentially holding the bag. The old people should be saluting. You know, that's Mm -hmm. our, you know, it's not like we're dying. That's the war that we're going to have to fight for all the spending and all the stupidity of the last two generations. Our war is going to be carrying the financial bag for these people. Well, not me, I'm one of the old people, but you know, (laughs) young people. So uh, they should be, you know, clapping. Uh, There should be like uh, old people clapping if you sign up for a Robinhood account. Now, uh, it's up to the young people to, you know, they're gonna get cut, they're gonna get wounded, they're going to uh, psychologically be tortured by the market. So it's up to people to get mentorship but there's never been a better time to get mentorship. So, you know, this is a really an, an incredible inflection and moment in time. You know, any 20-year-old that's opened an account at Robinhood or Acorn or Stash or Stock, you know what I mean? This is mm-hmm. like kind of treat it with respect and find some people that, and, 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 and just get started. So, yeah, I, I like that a lot, you know, just taking it a little bit more seriously, but, you know, diving in. So yeah, let's talk a little bit about your investing style. So I know you said uh, stocks are stories and bonds are math, which I really like that. And I wrote down another quote from you saying, I like to keep things simple, including my portfolio. Over the years, I've gravitated to owning companies and sectors whose products are needed, used, loved, and trusted across the globe by people in every age group, eight to 80. I I just, I'm really curious to see, you know, I I know you have a huge overview of a lot of trends going on in the markets and, and, and what people are really interested in. Uh, so what are the big themes you're focused on for the coming years to be invested in? Well, I mean, there's two things that obviously we wear clothes, you know, I'm not wearing pants at the moment, but we wear clothes <laughs> and uh, the, I haven't worn pants in about six months, but um, there's probably a pants bear market at this point. <laughs> um, but, you know, so fashion and technology at the highest level, fashion and technology, so technology at the highest level, and we look out the window, you see clouds. The cloud is probably the biggest trend, right? It, before the internet was in the cloud, before there was the cloud, there was Staples and Office Depot and your file cabinets and just misery of putting paper in stuff and then putting that stuff in stuff and then storing those files somewhere else that you never fucking needed. Mm-hmm. You 22-year-old pricks don't even have one file cabinet. My whole life was a file cabinet. My whole life was a garage. So unbundling all of that into the cloud is, you know, just thinking about it like that as someone who's in the crossover generation who used to have to move their books. You used to lug your books around and lug your files around. All that unbundling into the cloud is probably still inning one if you, if you talk to the smart people. So why confuse things? Now, that doesn't mean you, that's a, that's a, there's a million ways to invest, but like I want to choose the biggest pool or the biggest lake or the biggest ocean. So the cloud mm-hmm. is the biggest ocean. And since everybody has to have stuff in the cloud, I mean, it's the biggest market. So, so that's kind of one thing. And then obviously people wear clothes and obviously e-commerce because that takes away the bricks and mortars and that combination of bricks and mortars and e-commerce is a fascinating area for me. So those are kind of the main areas because they're big. I shop, I wear clothes, I spend, I have, I see what other people are doing with my eyes and ears. And so, you know, Nike, Lulu, Peloton, uh, Microsoft, Apple, Google, stuff that everybody's heard of, MasterCard, you know, the there's, I call them eight to 80 mm-hmm. brands, but there's, there's really hundreds of them. And then it's just trying to decipher it down to 10 to 20 that you think are the biggest. And then different styles within that, like founder-led companies, right? It's much easier to, you know, if the founder's still running the company, that matters. You know, they're already rich, so they're, and they still want to run their company and they have the most at stake. So it's all little things that you learn. The faster someone can find their style, the better, but, you know, there's, there's a million ways to skin the cat. I'm trying to, with the stock market, 
that's risk capital. And, and every book written says, you know, try and own companies for a long period of time. Well, I mean, you got to understand what that means. You're going to have periods of, you know, mm-hmm. of big drawdowns. And so you've got to find things going in the right direction with great CEOs, with huge markets, with with big moats around their product. And that all loads, all roads lead to, you know, the cloud and e-commerce. Yeah, I, I love that answer, honestly. And I, li- I like what you just said there at the end. You know, I've been having this little Twitter, uh, I guess, debate going on for a few weeks now with people. And, and, and I said that if you want to be a really good long-term investor and you want your portfolio to get the best gains, then you, you should be a trader too, in some regard. So yeah. I wanted to know your thoughts on that. You know, I think something like, and I know your thoughts on technical analysis a little bit, but I, I don't use technical analysis as the main thing for my investing. I, I use technical analysis or volume shelves and stuff like that after factoring in the news, the CEO, the fundamentals, the, you know, the market trends that are going. So I just want to know your thoughts on that because what you, what you just said really goes in hand with that a bit. Well, I think experience is everything. So, you know, me looking at charts and understanding price movements over 20 years is going to have an advantage, especially if I'm interested in it over someone who's doing it for like Davy Barstow. I don't care how smart he is. You know, I have an advantage over time because he's got to, he doesn't understand what happened in the past. He just doesn't have the experience. Uh, he has no context for how markets work. He, he's in the moment and in the moment, anybody can get a hot hand and mm-hmm. read table right right that's the beauty of the market but you know everybody ends up going back and looking at warren buffett's long-term track return or the s&p's you know long-term track return or the qqq right so the beautiful thing about the market is anybody can get a hot hand it's like poker what what made online poker great is anybody could win uh there's very little bluffing at at, in the market at uh, at a high level at the low level there's a lot of bluffing maybe at the Mm -hmm. uh, line scrimmage of trading and the closer you get to the line of scrimmage which is trading the more bluffing and the more professionals there are and the more computers etc there are so i think you're reducing your odds of success therefore beginners shouldn't trade a beginner should be you know listening and beginners should be just getting the experience of the days under their belt watching how the markets react and how uh there's no there's no shortcut to that experience Mm -hmm. uh the the thing that old people get mad about young people is they get mad about it you know if you bought in march you don't know what a what a bad market is you think Mm -hmm. you're a genius and a lot of people started right there too and and god bless they did and they may not see a bear market for eight more years so it's going to upset a lot of people but it'll also create a lot of bad habits for those people that started in march Mm -hmm. because they'll only know that they bought the bottom so again it's just you got to start and that's what robin hood and stock twits and all these things allow you to do is just one dollar ten dollars get in the game start getting your licks in and develop your style but i think everybody should learn how to trade but trading takes time investing you can start to come more what are the companies you spend a lot of money on today do you think you'll be spending a lot of money on them tomorrow buy the fucking stock pound the table mm-hmm. <laughs> get it in your portfolio worry about trading over time but there's nothing wrong with trading but there's also remember who you're trading against mm-hmm. and uh, that would be my only advice so stock, stocks don't only go up, as, as we've seen to see. It was just a genius rip. I mean, it got right. him what he needed to do, got him through COVID this far. Yeah. Fucking yeah. great, man. Like, you know. It was brilliant. Brilliant. And, yeah, I think it's been this and it culmination. Gone bad. Like, if the market turned around in June, he, he wouldn't have had another, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. uh-huh. you know, and that's that's the market. It can trick you into believing you're smart. And that's when it'll pull the rug out. And so I say buy great companies and then learn how to trade over time. But yeah. So this hilarious photo of you where you had on one side, you in a suit. Uh, underneath, there's a caption of the portfolio XLE, XLF. For those who do not know, those are energy and financial sector ETFs. And then on the other side, you have this huge smile, some cool shades on, awesome hat. The portfolio says all digital. On Twitter, we saw you, you know, beating this drum for so long. QQQ over spy. Tony was laughing. He's like, we're literally the same person. Uh, and I was saying the same thing, really pounding the table on that. And as you see, America's way more diversified nowadays. Underemployment's happening. And so really the only thing you have left now is robots, right? 
And I couldn't agree more. Uh, I remember back in college, I think this was over 10 years ago now, and I remember being a little drunk in my fraternity writing uh, on, the, on the bunk bed that robots will take over the world. And I always just think back to that. And I think I was a little bit early in the game because clearly that's where things were going inevitably. And then COVID, of course, accelerated that. Uh, in ways we couldn't even imagine, right? Besides COVID, like, what do you think caused this massive shift? The the how, the what, the why? How does this really affect, you know, any of the names that you may be invested in? Well, I mean, it's just like I said, it's it's about where, where do I have my edge? Where do I live? You know, I live in the cloud in many ways. We're talking on, <laughs> talking into a computer. You've got a microphone you sent through e-commerce, through Amazon. Like, it's how we live. Right. We can try and make it more complicated and buy an airline. But why did I just get off topic? It's like if you're going to be an expert in everything, it's fun. I mean, you're not going to. Mm. I don't think in a world that we live in today, you need to be an expert in everything. Right. It's, you know, Tiger Woods rule or whatever the rule is, 10,000 hours. Uh, if I'm going to invest my money, I'm going to invest in the areas where I spend my money and I spend all my money in the circle loop of of the cloud, my computer, my iPhone, and spending money to have robots deliver stuff to my house. And the person and people that do that best are going to profit the most, whether they use robots or people to ship it. I live locally, I invest globally. You know, you can change you can change the world around you locally, right? Pick a neighborhood that you want to live in. You, you don't have to, you know, we think we've, we've seen this with COVID. You know, it was a, it, I lived in a glorious era where you could fly across the world for dinner. And it was pretty cheap and there was very little risk. And uh, now we've had that taken away for us for a little while. And, you know, that, that trends that emerge after this, I can't predict all of them. I can predict we'll keep worrying about fashion and maybe not worrying about what other people think about our fashion, but what we feel about it in our home, you know, except no pants, maybe longer T-shirts. And, <laughs> uh, and I can wear different types of underwear now that I'm not wearing pants and get that fetish on. Yeah, that's breaking news. The uh, <laughs> and there's um, then there's just this stuff. Like, how do I get smarter? I'm talking to 22 year old guys who met over the internet, and 32 year old guys, and and so how do I speed up my knowledge? Right? It's I call it the peloton. You know, if you watch the oldest race in the world or the most interesting race in the world is the Tour de France, and we, you remove the drugs and the cheating and the whatever, it's still like <laughs> 21 days, mano a mano in the hills. And the most important part of the race is how they climb, but most of the race is in a peloton where they're feeding off each other. And that's kind of investing, and that's kind of football and soccer. There's these scrums and rugby, there's these scrums, and everybody is kind of at the line of scrimmage, and then there's a breakout. And someone breaks through the line of scrimmage and it's gone and someone breaks away from the pack in the Peloton and they got to time how long they can stay ahead of the pack and how much energy they've conserved and how their legs feel. And that's investing, right? You, you invest mm-hmm. in the pack and then occasionally you see something and then you, you have to you know, figure it out and then build conviction and you may see something that no one else sees. But generally you don't. Generally there's got to be these catalysts that emerge, whether it's people wearing earbuds and you realize that everybody's going to be wearing earbuds or whether it's some other piece of technology you realize everybody's going to use or some founder who has a special view on things and no one else sees. So it's all those things that in combination lead to outperformance and and to kind of investing for profits. It's all about the inches, as Al Pacino says. Oh, I like Love that. It. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, in the end, it's all about your vision and where you really want to go. But the inches matter for sure. Yeah. And a, a lot of people think that a lot of these huge changes are not going to last and, and growth in some of these recent, you know, game changing themes and sectors. Stocks are going to slow massively once COVID is over. Something like Zoom, Fiverr, Snapchat, Shopify, Etsy, for instance, people are thinking it's going to grow only 10% next year, even though it grew 137% last quarter. And I know that you said on Twitter that these trends are going to last much longer than most people expect. And the value people will have a new set of companies to be trapped in. So I just wanted to touch on that and see if you could expand a little more on what you think is going to happen with all these really big movers that happened recently because of COVID. Yeah, I mean, there's so many different ways to think about it because it is new. And it could be a new paradigm or we could be all getting sucked into the fact that we're all hotels <laughs> matter and airlines matter and buildings matter. And you know what I mean? I don't know. But mm-hmm. my gut is that the spreadsheet was a very convenient way. I go back to Excel spreadsheet, which is something I'm starting to think about. Before the spreadsheet, you had pencil and paper and 
public companies were run on a piece of paper taped together to create a bigger piece of paper to run your financials. And if you rubbed out one number, if the, if the, if one cheater rubbed out one number or added something wrong on their calculator, the whole fucking model was broken. And mm -hmm. imagine the pain that one wrong stroke of the pencil caused leading up to Excel. So how could there be markets? How could you trust anything if one uh, accountant moving one number on a piece of paper sent the whole world into a fucking tizzy? So along comes Excel. Like people can give credit to a lot of things, but Excel was the next generation that, that led to the markets, right? Wall Street and acquisition and growing. And guess what happened? The Excel spreadsheet led to trickery and like every business was run on Excel. Well, we could do this with this number and we could, you know, if the yield was this, we could do this many acquisitions. Mm -hmm. And we saw the end of that probably in 2008, meaning the debt, the end of the spreadsheet run business. We call it the cloud, and the, but you really went from pencil to spreadsheet. And I call this era, you know, creativity, the cloud, Airtable, Smartsheet, the fucking, if you show me a spreadsheet, I don't even trust you. What the hell? Like, you've already <laughs> learned from 2008, you can make a spreadsheet, do what you yep. want. You can make a pencil, do what you want. So I want to hear Absolutely. you talk about how big this can be. Now, I'll be the judge of your con man, because if you're talking about your airline, you know, I know the spreadsheet matters, but I also know what, end, what the ends in tears right? Because there's so many moving parts. So I want less moving parts. I want less conglomerates in my portfolio. If I'm going to own a conglomerate, it better be digital like Facebook or Amazon. And so we're in this new era where like the spreadsheet's out the window and if the spreadsheet's out the window, you sure as hell don't need an analyst telling you what something's it, worth. Preach. I say this on the podcast at least every week. I love that you said that. It's so wrong always. <laughs> like, often, it's, it's we crazy. just, we just, I just explained it. The pencil was, the, that's like coming to me with like your pencil out numbers of what the quarter yep. was. Like, who the fuck, what, what planet are you from? And then you come to me with a spreadsheet, which only 20% of the people know how to read anyways. And all I know is you can make a dance to whatever numbers you want. Mm -hmm. Like, tell me how big the market is. Tell me how I'm going to get access to them. Tell me how cheap I can get that customer. Okay. And, and by that time, you're already a multi-billion dollar company. So don't tell me what a spreadsheet looks like. Okay. I know what a spreadsheet looks like. Throw that out the window. Tell me your vision. Tell me how big this market could be. Tell me how you're going to reach all these people and tell me how you're going to keep all these people once you get them. So brand, 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 customer acquisition. What's the utility of your product? What are the margins? And then the investors will decide when they want to buy and sell the company. Like stop worrying about that stuff. So we're really in this like liberating moment of finance but it's still not perfect like you know now we're more in the behavioral side of the market when do people mm -hmm. say enough's enough i love zoom but i can't like with a straight mm -hmm. own it at this multiple so now we're in that era where like people don't know there's no boundaries so no one knows what evaluation mm -hmm. so there's good and bad like we're going to go through our own nightmare of trying to figure out what an analyst, who has the most power to move the markets, which is kind of cool, which is kind mm -hmm. of what Davy Barstool was the beginning of, like anybody could mm -hmm. be right. Uh, and then, you know, he's making fun of analysts and rightly so. They're dealing with yep. spreadsheets. So this really is. what he's making fun of is someone taking an old model to value his stock and God bless. But that wasn't possible to really make fun of them until the spreadsheet didn't matter. And that's the area we're in right now. Yeah, I really think you're, you're spot on, Howard. And uh, not sure if you, you listen to Pounding the Table. If you're unfamiliar, every single week, we do what we call this Pounder's Thesis Pick. And so each week, our fans or our listeners will give a thesis around a stock that they absolutely love. They're actually pounding the table on. I know recently you mentioned you're a huge fan of, of Farfetch. So I don't want to put words in your mouth or, or make that the thesis pick for you here, but... Would Farfetch be one that you're pounding or do you have another stock that you would love to pound the table on? I'm gently, again, pound, again, I'm, I'm the, I tell people what I'm doing, so I'm not going to pound the table. I, I'm definitely long. It always worries me in a market where is if the market turns over, is the market going to turn over on Shopify or on the newest, newest things that I like because they haven't run already. So it's just, mm -hmm. it's, investing is mainly a mental game. Like everything about, what I see about Elastic is a big position of mine. Spotify, mm -hmm. which is a big position of mine, but has had a good run, you know, since it broke out. And now Farfetch and Stitch Fix, which I go back and forth on. This fashion meets technology platform. Yeah. You know, I've tried Stitch Fix. I watch these young 
wealthy people spend money on Farfetch. And, and I think Stitch Fit, maybe it's a blend of, you know, Stitch Fix isn't for me, but I, as I use the app and just look at how they assemble things, I think Stitch Fix and Farfetch seem super interesting to me um, because COVID kind of accelerated. It'll come down to execution. Both stocks are breaking out, it looks like, but I can't pound the table because I don't use the products. I've tried the products and I don't. Mm. I, I can pound the table in the sense that it makes complete sense that the Gap or Etsy or Amazon to make a move into Gen X and Gen Z in, in different categories can both compete with Farfetch or buy Farfetch. So I like that. Mm-hmm. Farfetch is run by its founder. Stitch Fix is run by its founder. Elastic is run by their founders. A completely different company, Elastic, but that's more in the open source uh, software space. But those are like three that I'm like accumulating and watching and will probably mm-hmm. pound my forehead. I, I kind of would call people <laughs> smack my forehead with all the mistakes they made. So maybe we should have- <laughs> We should have yeah. a show just called Smack My Forehead. Yeah, a spin-off episode would be nice. Yeah. I like that. Yeah, well, don't steal it. I mean, hang on, I'm going to go daddy right now, Smack My Forehead. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm pounding the table on Smack My Forehead. Spank it my is. Forehead. Um, <laughs> smack My Forehead. No, I, I mean, <laughs> it's exciting to think these through, these ideas out in public. Forgetting about me pounding the table, it's about me putting that out there. Mm-hmm. And, getting feedback from people that use the product who helped me pound the table or help me put it to the side. Right. And mm-hmm. uh, I don't know in the public world, if having more people hate stitch fix than love stitch fix or, or not know Farfetch that do know the joy of this era is the data is in our hands. It's not in the spreadsheet. Yeah. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like I said yeah. about that before the data is like, how good do we use our network to retrieve information that actually matters to the moment in time? That is priceless. Like I said, we all have inside information now because we have the internet and we have our own network. Mm-hmm. So it's just fun to watch. You know, people are like, oh, I'm short Tesla. I'm like, why are you short Tesla? <laughs> when, you yes. short a, when you could be short a bank. I'm not saying you shouldn't short Tesla. I'm saying in all the things that you could do, everything mm-hmm. points to shorting poor brick and retailers that don't have an e-commerce strategy and banks that don't have a digital strategy as their forefront and have a lot of real estate. And there's no easier layup trade than, than shorting a broken sector. It's oh, not yeah. exciting. Not exciting. And that's not something I do, but like this is the things I try and tell people when they say Zoom's overvalue and Tesla's overvalue. That, that doesn't mean anything in, mm-hmm. in the world. So anyways, I'm pounding the table on smacking my forehead, I'm pounding the table on the spreadsheet is dead. I'm pounding the table on platforms around fashion and technology and open source software. And so hopefully those three ideas resonate with your listeners. They definitely Fantastic. resonate with me and Avi, I think, because we, you know, we we also are pounding the table on stuff like that. So man, it's been it's been an absolute pleasure having you on, Howard. Uh, you, you and I are, you know, it's like I'm in your head sometimes. So it's amazing to to hear these. Get the fuck out of my head, man. I'm, I'm <laughs> very proud over here. <laughs> well, Howard, thank you so much once again for popping on. Uh, if you guys haven't already, definitely check out Stock Twits. Uh, you can find Howard on Twitter. It's Howard Lindzen at Howard, L-I-N-D-Z-O-N. I also want to give you a quick shout out uh, on your own podcast. I listened to several of them before our conversation. Absolutely loved your approach. Super laid back, very digestible. So I want to just let Pound Nation uh, know a little bit about your podcast. Just a, one plug. I have a podcast called Panic with Friends uh, that I started in March where I invite on traders, investors, people like yourselves, but also great investors that I know, not just don't know, but I try and talk with my friends that help me do what you're doing, figure out where I should be focused. So so I don't just go on podcasts. I have my own twice a week, Panic, and you can go to Spotify or Apple to get that. And thanks for having me on, gentlemen. Thanks so much for coming on, Howard. I mean, it was just a fantastic interview. Uh, rarely do I ever agree with almost everything anyone says, but it happened this time. So, you know, you're more than welcome to come on the show anytime. And uh, let's talk a little bit about this company we were talking about during the interview, Farfetch. So I've been toying around with this stock a little bit, looking at it, doing a lot of research into it. I got a small position, but I think I'm going to up the position on it because I got a lot of interesting info from it. So my girlfriend's really big in the uh, in the fashion space. She she knows 
you know, everything about hype beast clothing, everything about what's fashionable and what people are doing and where they're buying it from. And, and she was telling me that, you know, this is going to be a big industry, especially knowing that people want to move obviously more and more towards these luxury items. And you've seen it with all these different brands coming out, right? Like it's $700 for a pair of Yeezys and they're just tennis shoes. And, and, and that, I don't think that's going to stop anytime soon until we have like a big change in that. And I, I don't think that's even going to come because even this correction, the, the people with the most money are the ones who lost the least. And, and those sales didn't go down in the same way that normal sales did. So this actually looks a little bit more insulated to any other potential attack or any other, you know, pandemic kind of to the retail space. So what I like about this, obviously, it's growing 74% year over year, and it's got yearly sales of 1.4 billion, really not a big market cap on this one under 20 billion. So something I look for is market cap rev growth, you know, year over year growth. That's a huge thing. And I love the fact that it's got some big partnerships going on with China. So you've got JD.com and Tencent investing in Farfetch. And that always for me is a big indicator when you see Tencent, Tencent Tencent is just a monster investor with incredible success. I mean, these guys, they own 25% of C-Limited. They own like 6% of Tesla. I mean, they, they could not be better in what they invest in. Obviously, it's not just a conglomerate of like 300 companies pretty much, but it works for them. So Farfetch is actually super interesting because even though it's an online luxury platform that connects consumers with over 1,200 luxury boutiques across the world, they are actually like starting to become more of a you know, direct to consumer platform. So they just bought Off-White, a big brand that most of the kids know these days. They bought their parent company. So they're moving into this, you know, we own a platform, but we're also on the platform space. And what, what typically, you know, happens with these big retail luxury names is that you don't really get discounts on them. It's very rare to find discounts because they want to uphold that, you know, that scarcity, that value of those brands. But Farfetch does offer some of these discounts. And, and I think it's really interesting because if they own these brands like Off-White, they can offer whatever discounts that they want without, you know, damaging the product because they know it's coming from Farfetch, who you know, owns the distributions, who owns the production of these companies now. So definitely adding this one to my long-term holdings more and more each day. Um, and actually looks like it's about to break out on the chart as well. What's cool too is that it takes a 25 to 33% commission on each sale. And even more so, they take 8% more if Farfetch handles the whole fulfillment. So that's just absurd if you think about how expensive these products are, how big the market's growing, right? The Farfetch active consumers reached 2.5 million in quarter two of 2020 versus 2.1 million in quarter one and 1.4 million in quarter four of 2019. So they gained a million active users in like a nine month span. That's insane. So I'm going to pound the table on it. I know Howard's pounding the table on the entire, you know, the space in general, which I, I love that idea, but I'm going to give this one a little pound for myself too. So you guys just gave it the double pound. I might jump in with the triple pound as we wrap up episode 14 here of Pounding the Table. If you guys haven't checked out our website, it is www.poundingthetablepodcast.com. Go ahead and subscribe. Make sure you never miss an episode. We're probably going to be coming out with a, a newsletter here in the future. So definitely subscribe. Make sure you're up to speed with everything there when you sign up you got a little place to put even a note we read every single one so shout out to uh, tripta thank you over in singapore uh and huge shout out to you as well we'll give last names out because we keep things pretty pc and private here but we appreciate all of the fans literally from all over the globe super cool so we'll probably start shouting some people out that do send us kind messages here in the future and last thing here before i turn it over to tony i want to give another huge thank you to howard for joining us on the podcast Super, super interesting. I'm going to uh, actually listen to this myself a few times. Yeah, had a lot of fun talking with him. Great, great show. I, I just want to say too, like, thank you guys so much for, you know, being a part of Pounding the Table and listening to us every week. And with that being said, if you guys love the show, please continue to share with your friends and family. You know, it's a good family show, except for this one. This one's explicit. But most of the time, it's a family show. We do have a support <laughs> button available if you'd like to contribute to the ongoing success of the show and continue to try to make Pounding the Table a household name. That helps bring the markets to the everyday investor in a really digestible and hopefully enjoyable way. Hope you guys enjoy the show. And as always, Pounders, have a great day. Drip on a hundred bits, ain't less than me. Y'all on level one, I'm level three. Pounding on the table for my team. Every night I flex. I'm making big moves. That's a big move. Big money, big.